You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses add value and prepare for the future. Hello, I'm Chris Paul, a partner at Trowers and Hamlins, and I head up the Cross Departmental Energy and Sustainability Team. Welcome to this second in a series of podcasts looking at the impact of Net Zero 2050 and the Further Home Standard on heating. Uh, and these are all badged under the general banner, the future of heating. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be looking at the future of heat pumps, um, how these uh, are becoming the heating choice, um, heating source of choice, and some of the practical implications uh, around dealing with them. Uh, I'm pleased to be joined with by uh, Iman Barmaki, who is Director of Low Carbon Partnerships at Cancer Contracting. Iman, welcome. Thank you. Um, so you've joined Cancer last year? Yes, I've recently joined Cancer. Um, I've got a background in asset management and sustainability within the local authority sector. So you've obviously got the you know a good person to, to talk to about the practical challenges that sort of you know landlords yeah, and homeowners are facing. I read a little um, on your background, and obviously you, you you've been involved in a, an award-winning project at, at Enfield in your your previous role. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so uh, Enfield has a, a huge number of tower blocks which. Uh, tend to be situated in areas of high fuel poverty um, and as most of the tower blocks are electrically heated either with underfloor heating or storage heaters um, built by the local authority to residents usually quite high cost and um, the residents end up paying for that. Um, Enfield developed a quite far-reaching sustainability strategy uh, back in 2007 with the ambition to reduce their carbon emissions by 40%. And they managed to do that uh, through various projects, including energy efficiency in properties and private sector, eco-funding and a mixture of different projects on their corporate estate. But it was about kind of how do we take that further in terms of our housing estate um, and what funding availability there was and obviously the RHI and eco-funding together seemed like a good choice to think about retrofitting some of our failing heating systems in our high-rise properties at the time. Um, and we brought forward um, a heating replacement program for 12 tower blocks and those 12 tower blocks have been retrofitted with ground source heat pumps on a shared ground loop. Um, so every four or five properties shares one ground loop which is goes about 250 meters deep extracts low-grade heat from the ground and brings it up into the property where the heat generation happens um, that the latest project which uh, was eight tower blocks with Kenza contracting um, costs around 4.7 million to do and that's 400 properties and uh, I am feeling managed to recover 4.3 million of that in RHI. Now we have to wait 20 years to get that benefit, um, but in terms of uh, asset life cycle cost, it, it was quite favorable in consideration to different types of heating that you might want to replace it with. Um, so that, that's the, why the decision was taken to do ground source heat pumps and also eco-funding was attracted and the residence bills were reduced from around 900 pounds to 350 pounds. So in terms of fuel poverty impact, it was huge. Um, and if you, depending on which kind of indicator for fuel poverty you follow, and the current one is obviously the low income high cost calculator, there's a fuel poverty gap. And the fuel poverty gap is the amount of extra income a property would need to not be fuel poor. And the yeah. average nationally is around 350 pounds. So within our project, we've managed to um, save the residents around 600 pounds every year. So in terms of the 
kind of the national statistics around fuel poverty, you can quite confidently say those properties are no longer suffering from fuel poverty and there's local economic impact from that availability of surplus cash in, the, in that area. So obviously that money then gets recycled back into local communities. So it's a win-win situation for everyone involved. I mean, it's a, it's a great example. And obviously retrofit is going to be uh, you know, the big challenge to get to net zero. So, so yeah. having those sort of case studies are, are really helpful. Um, probably worth sort of setting the scene slightly. In our last podcast, we, we spoke to, to Worcester Bosch um, and we were exploring the impact of net zero 2050 target, uh, the consultation on changes to building regs on Part L and Part F. Uh, and, and I think it's fair to say, you know, I don't think we need to go into that detail on this, this episode, but it's fair to say the trajectory of the government is now pretty clear. Um, uh, we, have, we have a fair idea of what future home standard is going to look like. Um, consultation isn't going to start till what, 2024, so it's not going to come to force in, until 2025. But we now know we're sort of aiming for a 75-80% less carbon emissions yep. than, than built today. And, and to do that, the government's talking about very high fabric standards, uh, so we're going to have triple glazing, um, better, better um, standards for walls, floors and roofs um, that, that limit heat loss. But they're acknowledging that they can't achieve net zero 2050 just through fabric alone. Uh, and so it, it's a much stronger focus on low-carbon heating. And of course, that they are looking to that to focus on things like heat pumps um, um, and connection to, to heat networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, we are seeing a step change in the delivery of heat. It's obviously a really um, exciting time for Kenza as a business. Yeah, Kenza has um, seen a dramatic growth over the last few years. I mean, as a business, we've been around for 20 years and we're market leaders in the ground source heat pumps on shared ground group array. Even today, we're moving into a new factory, which is seeing our manufacturing increase from 3,000 heat pumps a year to 30,000 heat pumps a year. Now, that's in line with the kind of trajectory which um, the Committee on Climate Change expects us to take in terms of the amount of heat pumps that are expected to meet the gap from now to 2030 to meet our zero carbon emissions. Um, But yeah, it's a huge period of growth. The business is growing um, and we're anticipating a huge demand in new build for our heat pumps. So, I mean, heat heat pumps, obviously, it's... Current buzzword, um, yeah. you know, but I, I suspect not everyone's seen one. Not everyone, everyone has experience of operating one. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not a t- technical person, but you know, could could you give us a bit of an overview of how, how a heat pump operates? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we all have heat pumps in our homes already. So, um, a standard refrigerator acts like a heat heat pump by removing heat from the inside of the refrigerator and pushing it out. Um, ground source heat pumps, uh, the, the difference there is we extract heat from underground um, using um, kind of submerged or buried pipework, and that's called the ground array. So the ground array, it can either be vertically or horizontally, um, it can even go into aquifers, um, and it's a way of collecting or tapping into the temperature, which is always steady underground between 10 to 13 degrees. So that temperature is um, collected through the ground array, and the ground array contains a mix of cold water and antifreeze. And heat typically moves from, you know, <laughs> warm environments to the kind of cold environment. So what what happens is that that ground array has picked up that ten or fifteen degrees, ten to thirteen degrees of heat, and that heat it goes up into a heat pump, and the heat pumps are located within each property. Inside the heat pump, you have um, two sides which have uh, heat exchangers and pumps and compressors. That 10 or 10 degrees of uh, temperature goes into a heat pump. It goes into a heat exchanger with a secondary plate heat exchanger which has a refrigerant. The refrigerant that we use uh, changes from liquid to gas, effectively it boils at minus 20. Um, and when you take that gas 
that's been heated up and doesn't become gas, you then compress it through a compressor. Um, you apply pressure and compression to the gas, it becomes hot. It becomes hot enough to then go through another heat exchange process where it warms the water within a wet system, so your radiators and hot water um, requirements are met by a heat transfer between the refrigerant and another heat exchanger, which is taking that heat into the property. Once that heat is lost and this gone into the property, it then becomes liquid again, and that refrigeration cycle then repeats again and again and again. So, um, so are, are these are these more complex than a condensing boiler or you know, gas I boiler? Think, I think the, the beauty of it is that there's no combustion and there's no point of use carbon emissions. So you can actually house it inside of, in, a, in a airing cupboard. And we 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 uh, manufactured the world's smallest and quietest heat pump. So we call it a shoebox. It's a little larger than a shoebox, um, but it's our uh, way of doing things is actually keeping things simple. And we had the local authority and um, house builders kind of market in, in mind when we manufactured these heat pumps. And you can put it underneath a hot water tank and, you know, it fits into an airing cupboard. It's tucked away and everything happens within that heat pump. So you've got two circulatory pumps and, like I say, two heat exchangers and a compressor. With an installation, though, would you have a separate hot water tank as well? You would, yeah. So then we're seeing the, the measures of different technologies. So we can either use a standard hot water tank, which has obviously coils inside there that gets heated with a immersion backup, um, or there's other technologies like phase change materials, like there's a device called a sun amp, which can create the same level of hot water in a small amount of space. So we have lots of different projects with different types of hot water generation on site. And you know, from a you know, a, a, say a landlord's point of view, is this, is this you know more high maintenance than a traditional gas boiler? There isn't really much to maintain because there isn't any combustion happening, um, so you don't really have to have the same type of mandatory kind of compliance checks and safety checks as you do with gas boilers. So like and, and your safety checks are out the window. Yeah, they're yeah. out the window, and if you were to put a price on every single safety inspection and take that over the life cycle of your heat pump, suddenly you've, you've got a substantial saving there, um, which you can feed into the, the kind of savings mm -hmm. if you were to, if you go down that route. Um, there, there is um, some pressure within the ground array, so it would be useful to keep an eye on that pressure um, within the ground array but with it, and making sure everything is hydraulically sound and that kind of stuff can happen outside of the property, not necessarily in access to the property to make sure that's working. All of that is in the communal areas and you can check that. Um, but no, you don't need individual access and it's not high maintenance in any way, shape or form. It's, if anything, it's reduced. But well, I mean, costs are another question. You know, sure. are, these, are these more extent, expensive to install? You know, is this something that would be factored in on bill costs? Um, um, it's, a, it's an interesting topic talking about cost because if you were to look at the installation cost inside a property, or what you have inside the property is a heat pump and a wet system, which is radiators and a hot water tank. Um, your uplifting cost might be the fact that you have to put double panel radiators in rather than single panel radiators because for the heat pump, the flow temperature is, is reduced, or you have underflow heating. And the, all of the projects that we're involved in, especially in social housing, we're using radiators. Um, where the cost gets increased is having to pay for the ground array. Mm -hmm. So you might find that you have to typically something between five to eight thousand pounds for the borehole to feed the ambient temperature into the property. Um, at the moment the renewable heat incentive is there and covers the cost of that ground array. 
Um, but when you're comparing costs, when you're thinking about installing a gas boiler, you don't think, okay, I need to also factor in um, the cost of installing 200 meters of pipe work to get to my gas connection. Mm. And actually, the ground array, once you've installed it, is, is there for over 100 years. So it's kind of infrastructure, which is why it's fundable through the RHI. And actually, there's, there's a conversation to be had potentially around who funds that in the future. You know, maybe the KPLC needs to pick up the tab and have a, a street full of ground arrays which people can connect to, that will dramatically reduce people's cost considerations, especially from a capital expenditure perspective. So yeah, it's almost like a heat grid company in the same way yeah, we have electricity I mean, network. Yeah, I mean, it mimics a gas network in, in a sense. It's a, it's a plastic pipe that goes in the ground and is collecting temperature. So that enables the heat pump to work. So yeah, there, there is a cost consideration, but internally within a property from an asset perspective, that there isn't a huge markup. The difference is the ground array is kind of separate and that needs to be factored in. So we talked a little about you know, net zero and you know, the future home standards. And obviously that's focusing very much on new homes. We don't quite know what's coming yet for existing homes, but we can envisage something will come that will require you know, that side of the market to, 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 to move across. Um, in terms of design considerations, how easy is, is it to fit you know, heat pumps into existing homes? I mean, again, you need some space for the heat pump and a hot water tank. And what you probably find in most properties, there's an airing cupboard, um, especially if you look at social housing, which this is really uh, getting attention and people are doing mass installations. Uh, typically, there's a hot water tank inside a property. It might not be heated through the hot water tank. Mm -hmm. That's just for the hot water. There might be underfloor heating or storage heaters. So in terms of design, we'll go in and look, okay, well, if there's an airing cupboard, or if there isn't, could we create an airing cupboard? And our, our heat pump is so small, that actually it occupies the same floor space as a hot water tank, so you can quite easily put it underneath a hot water tank. And the rest of the design is actually where you would put your radiator. So if someone was coming into a new, uh, an existing dwelling and saying, okay, well, we need to retrofit this with a new heating system, and they were putting in a gas boiler, it's the same design considerations they need to factor in. Where it gets a little bit more complicated is routing that ambient temperature from the ground into that individual property. And that requires some specialist knowledge and specialist expertise to be able to make sure you do you install the ground array properly, making sure that there's no air caps, and making sure that kind of thermal transfer between the ground and the ground array happens really well. And that's where we've been quite successful in the past, and the, all of the installations that we've done today are working really well. Whereas we've, I've seen so many installations that don't work that well right. because the ground array hasn't been filled properly. So you know you're you're putting in a loop 250 meters deep. You need to make sure that you put a pipe all the way down and fill it with grout so that it you know it allows for that thermal transfer to take place. And if you're not installing that properly, then you've got air gaps. So it's going to be inefficient to exactly. Yeah, so those, those are the considerations that, that you need to make. And we, we find we spend a lot of time with clients just educating them about this is really important and this is really what you need to focus on. And that tends to win hearts and minds in terms of the design and we also spend a lot of time with consultants just trying to make sure that they get all of these factors right. So so the retrofit market is still perfectly possible, highly likely it's going to be a heat pump solution, but a bit bit of early thought on specification yeah, and sure. procuring I mean, the right partner. Absolutely. I mean there's a there's a shift at the moment. I think we've we've got around seventy percent of the local authorities in the UK who have declared the climate emergency. Um, and a lot of those local authorities have their own housing stock. 
Um, so the biggest impact that they could deliver is to decarbonize the heating within their housing estate and also their commercial estate. So most of the people we're talking to are domestic. The next conversation is obviously around commercial heat pumps, so they're the existing properties as well. So we're able to do both. You know, we, we, we manufacture the commercial scale heat pumps as well. Um, but you know, there's a there's a big room for localism to come in and say this is what we expect in in our area, and we want to first address our scope one carbon, then scope two, um, which will obviously encapsulate schools and housing. And then scope free is a little bit more difficult to do, but in theory, they can local authorities can incentivize that. Um, and by leading for by example, and very much the kind of uh, Enfield strategy and the way Enfield it is, we need to lead by example. We need to make sure our carbon emissions are reduced, and we need to enable our private sector uh, residents to be able to follow suit. So, if we can introduce um, availability of eco funding and availability of um, new heating technologies, then they would facilitate that. And I think the local authority needs to be a little bit more pioneering in terms of trying to get to that 2030 target, whereas at the moment there's probably a lot of discussions around action planning and how do we get there and figures of like 200 to 300 million are banded around and people suddenly get scared, well, this is too big a challenge for us to take on. But, you know, step by step, we can do. I think it's always the, the message, isn't it? The earlier you start, the the less difficult the journey is, um, you know. If we all wait until the government legislates absolutely uh, yeah. for existing stock, yeah. then we're all going to be competing for a for a limited supply chain. Yeah, and indeed. And you know, if if we do wait for policy drivers and legislation to come in, then that cost is probably going to increase. Um, at the moment, government incentivizes retrofit and installation of zero carbon heating by the renewable heat incentive. And I know that's coming to an end uh, March 2021, and we haven't had any kind of announcements in terms of what's happening, but we're hopeful and optimistic that that will continue and it will enable uh, and incentivize people to um, go down the retrofit journey a little bit earlier before it becomes legislative. Because when the policy driver and legislation comes in, it's unlikely that that uh, incentive is going to be there, similar to what we saw happen with the feeding tariff. Yeah. You know, it had really, really good rates of return on uh, the feeding tariff, and we got to a stage where we could kind of see grid parity in terms of being able to invest in this and recover your cost through savings. And then the feeding tariff disappeared. Um, I suppose if you're yeah. a, a contracting authority starting now and you, you, know, you factor in your procurement time, you factor in you know, your design, your mobilization, Absolutely. delivery, and doing all the paperwork to get RHI. That's looking quite tight by the March. So. It is very tight. Um, we so have a lot of clients at the moment who are rushing to get their projects installed and making sure we have enough time to accredit their installations for RHI. Yeah, so, so hopefully something's coming on that. Um, so we talked a little bit, a, a bit about you know, the, uh, the legislation uh, around it, but I'm interested also on the practical side. Um, you know, so what is the reality of life with a, you know, living with a heat pump? You know, do, do, do tenants, do homeowners need to change the way they use their heating systems? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the advice with uh, a heat pump, and, and it's not necessarily what the heat pump does, is how the heating is managed inside the, that property. So if, if you're running it through um, radiators, say, for example, the practicalities of using your radiators would be very similar to the practicalities of how you use a gas-fired system. So if you have first up central heating with um, uh, social housing, a lot of people think, oh, that's fantastic. I'm getting radiators. I can put my clothes and dry them on there. But obviously, that would make a gas system 
work less efficiently as it would with heat pumps. Mm -hmm. um, so the advice is not to do that. Uh, a lot of hand-holding and um, resident liaison is required on a lot of these projects to make sure people understand exactly how to, how to uh, use heat, um, especially if they're moving away from something like underfloor heating where the, their feet have been warm for a while yeah. and then you're taking that away and switching that off and then you're putting in radiators which warms the air, suddenly their feet are cold. <laughs> so so that, that doesn't mean that there is no heating in the property, but it's a kind of psychological shift to say, well, actually the room temperature is now adequate. Um, maybe we need to think about putting carpets down, mm -hmm. for example, to cover that, that element of it. And also we're seeing um, we're, uh, the introduction of like smart technologies coming in. So you can utilize our system with uh, smart thermostats, um, like of Hive, Nest, Switchy even, who are having some inroads into local authorities which have algorithms within them that can actually learn tenant behavior. Um, and with those kinds of technologies, when a resident sets a temperature at a particular time of day, that device learns how that resident uses heat and it automates it. So actually there is no interaction in terms of this is when I want it on, this is when I want to switch off. It's all automated. Is it fair to say it's a bit more thought required from, from the user? I mean, it's not instantaneous. You can't come in and, it, like you would stick a boiler on and, and get warm very quickly. It's, it's more of a build-up of temperature. Uh, not so much more. Um, but um, if, you, if you think about it, like in a towel block, for example, you have plenty of usable heat in the risers. So it's, it's not like you have to wait for you know all of that ground temperature to come in from 300 meters away to warm the heat pump. The, the heat pump is fairly instant and your hot water is topped up at the right temperature throughout. So that will be instantaneous as well. Um, but it's through a hot water cylinder, very similar to a non-combination boiler, standard yes. you know, standard boiler. Which I'm sure um, some, some are used to. I mean, yeah. you hear various horror stories. Um, you know, we've heard you know, rumours that uh, heat pumps don't work very well in cold temperatures. Um, they're not well suited to the, the UK climate, you know, issues of icing up. Also, the suggestion that you know certainly the air source heat pumps can be really noisy. That's um, right. And, and you know, how fair are those criticisms? I think there's a there's a danger of generalizing all the heat pumps in, uh, together. So there's distinct differences between ground source and air source heat pumps. I mean, both of them are renewable technologies, and actually, uh, both of them are a lot better than having a gas fired system in, and you, you're taking away your kind of uh, com combustion and carbon emissions and you're having your air quality improvements there. Um, when you're looking at the difference between ground source and air source, ground source is relying on a fairly stable ground temperature to provide that ambient heat mm. um, and it could be minus five above ground but a meter, two meters down it's always going to be 10 to 15 degrees. That temperature is there because of solar gain um, and it's steady. So in the winter when it's really cold, you're still taking 10-15 degrees of heat out of the ground. If you compare that to an air source heat pump, where um, at the times where the weather outside is the coldest, it needs to work the hardest, it's got access to a lot less ambient temperature, mm -hmm. so therefore it will work less efficiently. Um, and that's where the horror stories might have come from. Um, and you know, by the, the, by the very fact that you need to get your temperature from the air, um, you have to put your heat pump unit outside of the property that makes it more susceptible to weathering you know the impacts of rain wind 
Um, so the life expectancy of that heat pump is greatly reduced as well, whereas with a ground source heat pump, everything's nicely tucked away inside an airing cupboard with a door and, uh, you know, it's a comfortable temperature, so it lasts a, a fair bit longer. In terms of efficiency, we're, we're looking about, uh, you know, maybe up to 250 to 300% efficient efficiency for an air source heat pump as opposed to 300 to 400% efficiency for a ground source heat pump. So you get your efficiency through your ground source heat pump. It's greatly increased, and also the reliability is there as well. So, yeah, there, there have been horror stories, and we, we've all heard of them. And even when I used to work in the local, in the local authority, and we were looking at um, new heat pumps, we we were considering air source heat pumps. Um, but one of the biggest considerations were, okay, for fifty properties, we have to put fifty heat pumps. The noise from those heat pumps is going to be significant ones, yeah. on the air source. And also, you need to get planning permission. The beauty of ground source heat pumps is actually permitted development. Right. So from a development perspective, from a retrofit perspective, it makes life that much easier where you don't have to wait for planning permission. And as long as you're digging your boreholes within the curtilage of the property, it's all permitted development. So, so I mean, life is a little bit easier in that way as well. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, it's a technology we're all going to have to become more familiar with. And, and homeowners, it will become... More normal. If every new property has this in, this is rapidly going to become absolutely you know, a familiar technology. Yeah. Um, you know, if you could give one sort of sort of parting word of advice to sort of landlords or developers, then what would that be? I think uh, don't be fearful of the new technology. Engage with us. Um, we are more than happy to come do some feasibility studies free of charge, just to make sure that people understand what is possible mm-hmm. um, and. Throughout the years of me working within the kind of energy efficiency industry and the peaks and troughs of funding availability, one of the things that I've always found useful is to have ready-made projects. Even if you put a park on the shelf for six months or a year, there will be a policy announcement. Possibly you might get some funding towards that project and then you can, you're can you ready to rock. Not having that idea of what you want to do with your housing stock and reacting to the policy announcements means that it's going to take you a while to develop those ideas. It's going to take you a while to get that through your uh, governance, your governance yeah. structures. Mm-hmm. And by the time you've done that, you're rushing to get to the end of the funding period. Um, so my advice would be pick up the phone, talk to us. We're happy to tell you what is possible, what isn't possible. It's not going to cost you anything. Um, and when the time comes and when you're more comfortable with the funding regime and hopefully the announcements with RHI will come at some stage and if we can influence our colleagues at base to change it from an OPEX model to a CAPEX model where it's grant funded up front and that will certainly make decisions for uh, larger landlords a lot simpler to make. So yeah, so, so the key message there is sort of a bit of, you know, Early initiative, get get going. Absolutely, and, you know, yeah. start collecting some data, understand how it would work. With yeah, your, there your is, and, and you know, don't be fearful of the uh, cost implications. I mean, we're, we're seeing a huge emergence of heat as a service within the heat network industry, where you have ESCO type businesses yes. that come up and they do the investment for the heat network, and then they recover the cost through uh, a heat charge. Now, in a in a post RHI world, there's nothing to say that 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 model cannot be applied to heat pumps and it already is you know mm-hmm. so we have a sister company called Utilities which is set up to enable that kind of uh, funding regime and uh, heat as a service to operate but you, you need to make sure you have the most efficient system and if you have a ground source heat pump system 
and you're going through the heat as a service model, then you're incentivized to make that system as efficient as possible so that you can recover costs a little bit better. And one of the other things that I would say is make sure you put in more renewables. So if you mix your technologies with, let's say, solar PV or PVT panels, or batteries and MPHR, you have a better saving. There's lots of examples up and down the country of even new developments which are coming to fruition with zero energy bill, zero energy bill homes, for example, in Kobe, uh, uh, which I visited last week. And there you're seeing new properties built with ground source heat pumps, MPHR, batteries, solar PV, PVT panels, and you know the the net cost for that homeowner is a zero energy bill. That's fantastic. We should all be it's interesting. I mean, it, 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 I don't think it's long before you know purchase of properties start asking those sort of questions. Absolutely, be a bit more switched on. I mean, we're obviously in an era of lots of legislation, lots of change, lots of consultation on change. Um, uh, you know, if we were sort of talking to the government now, what would you be saying to them about this sector, and what what, needs, what else needs to happen? That's a really interesting question, and I could probably talk about it for days. But, um, legislation has a part to play, and that needs to be brought forward. However, with most of these uh, projects that we've encountered, funding certainty is really, really important. So in the, in the absence of funding, either policy needs to come in and, and, and pave the way for the future, or we need some sort of certainty in terms of what the funding is going to be. Because at Kenza HQ, we have a number of local authorities and projects who are just waiting just to hear that funding certainty and then to commit to those projects. So it's, you know, it's the future of RHI is, is critical to, very, very to critical. confidence. Especially in the shorter term, in the next five years. I mean, if we're looking between now and 2030, between now and 2025, we definitely need to have some sort of incentive. Mm. And the 2025 target for the future home standard will probably come in and pick up some of that. But in the, in the meantime, we definitely need to have some funding certainty. I, think, I mean, if rumours to, to be believed, you know, something's coming on RHI. So Absolutely. I think we're all, we're all waiting for that. Yeah. Iman, it's been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners will, will have found it a useful insight to how heat pumps work and some of the practical issues. So I appreciate you all your time. Thank you. More than welcome. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.